Hello, welcome back. Great to be with you again. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the moment with the assistance of our team of journalists around the globe. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. Now, admittedly, there were a lot of different strands of news coming out of the recent UN Climate Change Conference held in Scotland. Luckily for us, though, MLEX's energy team was there, and both Julia Bedini and Catherine Carlson will join us for an overview of what went down. That will be in the second part of today's podcast. First, though, to the US, where the new direction of the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, has been referred to by one of its commissioners as appalling and gut-wrenching. It was an unprecedented attack on the agency by one of its own. So uh, what exactly is going on here? Well, our listeners and readers know all about the Biden administration's appointment of Lena Khan to head one of the two US antitrust regulators. Khan is what's been referred to as a neo-Brandeisian, and we'll talk about what that actually means in just a moment. Our tech correspondents Mike Swift and Kushita Vasant were there when Commissioner Christine Wilson made those comments. Mike, of course, is our chief global digital risk correspondent in San Francisco. Kushita is a senior correspondent normally based in Washington, D.C., but today she also joins us from the city by the bay. And Kushita, let's uh, start with you. What did Wilson say and what were the former stakes that she said the so-called neo-Brandeisians are making. Thank you for having me, James. And it's great to be doing this podcast with Mike. Uh, We had a very interesting interview with uh, FTC Commissioner Christine Wilson last week. Uh, This was followed by a very forceful and emotive speech she gave at the ABA Fall Forum. Well, before I get into what the four mistakes are, I think I'm going to talk about what the neo-Brandeisian philosophy is. It's named after uh, a former U.S. Supreme Court Justice, Louis Brandeis, uh, and uh, his philosophy aims to expand the analysis of antitrust violations beyond the consumer welfare test. Uh, And it's designed to assess the harm to consumers from anti-competitive conduct. So typically, this approach includes an increased focus on labor markets, uh, the possibility that dominant companies have a duty to deal with their competitors, a preference for structural remedies when it comes to merger settlements um, and examining whether a company's pattern of mergers and acquisitions uh, tends to create a monopolic, uh, monopolistic situation. Uh, so, so Wilson says that uh, the new FTC leadership, uh, which is chaired by Lena Khan, uh, is going to make four mistakes, uh, which is going to undo their own merger and antitrust policy agenda. And uh, she started by saying that, you know, the neo-Brandeisians look at everything that has been done over the past 40 years as a failed experiment. So the four mistakes are very quickly an over-reliance on rulemaking, for instance, or a preference for going it alone without the backing of Congress or the judiciary. And she also said that there's a disdain or there's been some sort of rebuke of the senior FTC staff Uh, for being rigid or for being complacent. And the fourth mistake is that um, they've been responsible for creating some sort of confusion. Uh, So, for instance, you know, there's the vertical merger guidelines were repealed by the FTC, but the DOJ has not followed suit. 
Okay, so Mike, uh, how was Wilson's speech received? I mean, I think it's safe to assume that when she's referring to neo Brandeisians, she's not uh, using that as a compliment. So, how was that speech received, and how unprecedented was it? Yeah, hey James, it's great to be here. Um, so, I've covered a lot of these conferences. Um, they tend to be when people speak, they tend to be very polite. Um, if there's criticism, it tends to be somewhat veiled and abstract. And when Commissioner Wilson got up there um, last week at the ABA Fall Forum, I wasn't really um, expecting that much. I was only half listening. And a few minutes in, I was like, whoa, this is not a typical speech. And she was using words like the current leadership has disdained uh, the career staff. I mean, just very loaded uh, diction that she was applying. And um, I was like, wow, uh, as the speech was going on. And as soon as it was over, you know, I sort of, uh, and, and Kashida did as well, we we went out and made a beeline out into the corridors and started talking to people about uh, what's going on. Well, you know, have you ever heard a speech like that? And um, there's one uh, prominent antitrust attorney I'm thinking of in particular, and we asked him, you know, have you ever heard a speech like that? And he said, never, 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 never. I think he said never five times. So this was um, quite unprecedented. I, you know, I, would, I wouldn't know if anyone has ever made a speech like this in the past that's so critical, uh, so blunt. But I've never heard one like this, and so it was very much out of the ordinary. All right, so this is a, a break from the past. Now, Kushita, you and Mike have both alluded to this, but tell me something about what uh, Commissioner Wilson and Senator Mike Lee said about the brain drain at the FTC. Why uh, do they think that that is uh, such a problem and such a concern? This was addressed under mistake number three, in Commissioner Wilson's speech. Uh, the headline for mistake number three was shunning the agency's actual experts. And uh, Senator Mike Lee was speaking at the same conference, although uh, in the afternoon. Uh, and it was uncanny to see how both of their speeches had similar words and the message was also highly similar. And uh, it seemed like a very concerted effort. But anyway, the crux of what she said was, Uh, that the Democratic leadership had sidelined and disdained staff, uh, just what Mike said. And she said that that there was a reprehensible management style which has led more and more long-term staff to leave the agency. So she started off by saying how the FTC is, you know, filled with dedicated uh, uh, attorneys and, and, you know, analysts and economists and, and the FTC consistently ranks near the top of the best places to work when it comes to federal agencies in the U.S. But the current leadership has sort of undone that. Uh, I believe she even used the words that, you know, this um, the fabric of bipartisanship and collegiality has been shredded. Uh, and she said that this brain drain was prompted in part by Cherylina um, Khan's cancellation of public appearances by staff. Because when... FTC staffers go out and speak at public events, uh, you know, they learn from the industry, they get to interface with lawyers and with economists and with, with you know, lobbyists, and uh, that, that helps. But now, and I'm quoting here, uh, Commissioner Wilson, she said, I've heard their management strategies to instill what they label F-U-D, F for fear, U for uncertainty, And then she says, a well-placed freedom of information request could reveal what the D stands for, 
but um, she does sort of nudge at what it could possibly stand for, which could be doubt, despair, or dread. Um, and she said, any way you label it, it's it's reprehensible. Um, and so Senator Mike Lee also said the same things. He, he said that, you know, FTC employees have been asking merging parties about their relationships with labor unions or environmental, social, and governance policies. And, and they almost seem apologetic when they when they're when they have to do that as if the FTC leadership has asked them to ask these questions without an explanation and he said that a number of DC law firms are seeing a an unprecedented number of FTC attorney resumes sent their to their office so he said this is something that he loses sleep over um, you know this serious brain drain um, and that's what he said is concerning now, uh, Kushita, staying with you, uh, to what extent is this the opinion of Commissioner Wilson and to what extent did Republican Commissioner Noah Phillips go along with those sentiments and agree with uh, with what was expressed? Right. So we, so we also sat down with Commissioner Phillips the same week and uh, he more or less agreed with, with what Commissioner Wilson said and what uh, Senator Lee said, although um, I would say he, he, he sounded less forceful uh, or less emotive but he basically said that you know perhaps the chair could tell her friends outside of the agency not to mock FTC staffers so he is equally concerned um, but his way of delivering the messages has been slightly different yeah and, and just to to chime in on what Kashida said there um, it's clear that Commissioner Wilson is taking this stuff pretty personally she has a very long history at the FTC she started her career there as a law clerk. She was um, chief of staff to a former chairman, uh, Tim Uris, right back after the turn of the century. And she has a very long history within the FTC. Noah Phillips, not so much. So I think it makes sense that you know they don't disagree with each other, but you can very much see the difference in their demeanor uh, in, in on these topics, as, as Kushida was noting. And Mike, what has been the response so far of Khan and the other Democrats on the FTC? So the public response has been silence. Um, and you can understand that perhaps if uh, a critic is taking pot shots at you, one way to give credence to the critic is to answer them and argue with them. And um, they've apparently elected not to do that. Um, however, we do know that... Um, Chair Khan sent a letter to the FTC staff assuring them that she really values them. She thinks they're great and that they shouldn't listen to uh, critics. Uh, I don't think she mentioned uh, Commissioner Wilson in the letter that are saying that, you know, there's this disdain towards the staff, that she feels very much the opposite. So I think we can conclude that there was a fair amount of upset uh, from the leadership because of Commissioner Wilson's speech and the even more loaded things that she said in her interview to uh, with us afterwards. But um, so far, they're kind of playing it a little bit cool, and they are not answering uh, these charges in public. So it'll be interesting to see if they can keep that up or whether um, the chair is forced to really to answer to these these charges. Now, Mike, both you and Kushita have mentioned in passing uh, Wilson's demeanor uh, during her MLEX interview. So maybe I'll get you both to comment on that, given that it's uh, it's it's obviously noteworthy. Mike, what uh, what did you make of it? 
Well, I, I mean, I just uh, went through and looked at some of the, uh, the, the language that she used, which, um, you know, we thought it was loaded when she was giving the public speech. But after the, when she sat down with us, um, she met us, you know, she walked up into the uh, uh, out of the auditorium and we went immediately after and, and spoke with her. And, you know, it was clear that she was feeling things quite strongly um, about this speech. And, in our interview with her, she used words like appalling, gut-wrenching, uh, described the track of the Federal Trade Commission as being a slow-motion car wreck, and said that, in her view, that was very disturbing. So th- these were not uh, fancy words that were being uh, made up or prescripted. Uh, whether she's right or wrong, I think she seems to believe this, and so um, that, w- that was my takeaway from, from sitting across a table with her and, and speaking about it. So the anger was uh, genuine. Kushita, is that how you read things as well? Uh, yes. We actually went back to her and asked her, uh, you know, Commissioner, there's a two-two vote split, so perhaps it's, it's not so bad right now because there are two Republicans and then there are two Democrats. And um, she said, uh, not really, because they're lighting fires and we are ignoring them. And she said that um, the consequence of everything that is currently going on, you know, over the past six to eight months, but specifically over the past five months, uh, since the new leadership took over, she fears that the FTC could lose its antitrust authority. Um, And and she, she said that, you know, there's a Senator Mike Lee has, he reintroduced actually, this was an act, this was a bill that was introduced before, but earlier this year, I believe in March, uh, Senator Mike Lee reintroduced the One Agency Act to streamline and improve antitrust enforcement. And uh, at the time he said that, you know, for too long, our two-headed antitrust enforcement system, which is the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, the sister agencies, they've suffered from bureaucratic infighting and delays and redundancies and inconsistency. And the One Agency Act would sort of take away the antitrust authority power from the FTC. And she said, I wish this were an academic debate. Unfortunately, it's not. So my takeaway is that she really came across as helpless. Now, Mike, for foreign uh, observers, this is all a bit extraordinary because in many other jurisdictions, uh, these agencies are run by impartial public servants. So the notion of uh, partisanship in this context is a bit unusual. But the FTC had dealt with that partisanship by trying to create some level of cooperation within the FTC. Uh, Is that likely now to uh, be a thing of the past? Will it, in fact, become more partisan like other agencies, for example, the the FCC? Well, that's a great question. Um, You know, one thing we saw with the Federal Communications Commission uh, between the Obama years and the Trump years was that in the debate over net neutrality, it became a very charged partisan atmosphere where the Democrats were basically pursuing an agenda where um, internet services were going to be much more tightly regulated. And then when the Republicans came in under Trump, they completely reversed it. And those were completely party line votes. And the, the sort of tenor of, uh, you know, the, the commission, the, the FCC became much more partisan. During those same years, the Federal Trade Commission was very different. Um, it was 
the chairs, if they were Republican, were more moderate. Uh, there was a real spirit of bipartisanship, of um, politeness even. And it's clear that that, that atmosphere is gone at, at the moment. Um, we don't know how, you know, what the future is going to bring, but it's not looking very hopeful for friendly conversation and respectful dialogue. Um, it seems to be becoming more and more charged along political lines. So uh, we'll see. And, you know, to be fair, some critics of the FTC over the years are thinking, are saying that's a good thing. It's good that it's becoming uh, a little bit more lively, that one uh, standard criticism of the uh, FTC is that the reason why companies like Facebook and Google have become so powerful and have made so many mistakes in terms of damaging privacy and, and becoming um, overly powerful monopolies is that the FTC stood back and let it happen and was just trying to be polite and get, being, you know, get along with everybody. And it's good that we have a leader in Lena Khan who is willing to um, you know, break a few eggs to make an omelet. So this is all a good thing. And, and uh, you know, we're going to see what happens. I, I think that um, there will be some outreach to the critics, uh, the Republican critics, and um, perhaps it won't be as so charged going forward, but that remains to be seen. Just one thing that I would like to add to what Mike said is that uh, Christine Wilson closed off her speech by saying that, uh, you know, she stands for economic liberty and uh, process matters and she fights for free markets and free markets beget free people. Uh, so she basically said, for these reasons, I do not plan to stop speaking out anytime soon. So what I'm trying to say is that I think the this is not over, even though this was a forceful speech, which is uh, rare to see, uh, I, I do think that things will get more interesting in coming days and weeks. Definitely agree with that. I, this is not over. Uh, there's more interesting times ahead. Okay, so the fireworks are going to uh, continue. Mike and Kushita, thank you so much for your uh, interview and also your reporting on this issue. We really appreciate it. Thanks again. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Kushita Vasant is an MLEX senior correspondent and Mike Swift is our global digital risk correspondent and they were joining me from San Francisco and the analysis that they've written on the statements by Christine Wilson is ready for you to check out. Just go to our website mlexmarketinsight.com that's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com and click on the News Hub tab for the very best of our reporting and analysis. Next up, we're heading to Scotland. This is MLEX's weekly podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. I'm James Paniki. Thank you for staying with us. Now, COP26 was an at times heated and fraught affair with heads of state and government coming together in Glasgow to agree and often disagree on how best to manage the climate change challenge. And the stakes couldn't be higher, not just because of the implications for our warming planet, but also because the policy settings being discussed are likely to have a very real impact on industry. The leaders did reach a final agreement on an international market for emissions credits, but there was some pushback against a global phase-out of coal. The language there needed to be tweaked somewhat. Julia Bedini and Catherine Carlson are MLEX Brussels-based reporters covering energy issues, and they were both in Glasgow for the meeting of 197 countries. 
and they join me now. So, Catherine, if I may start from you, COP26 was defined by the summit president and at times emotional Alex Sharma as a fragile win. So the temperature goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius has been kept alive, he said, but there is still plenty of work ahead. So uh, I suppose why is that the case and what was in the final agreement? Hi. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Glasgow Climate Pact, as the agreement is now known, it turned out to be quite a mixed bag in the end. Um, in the last couple of days of the summit, there was a lot of excitement from certain governments that the text was going to be the first to commit to a global coal phase out eventually. Um, but India and China intervened at the final meeting where the text was agreed and insisted that the language be changed from coal phase out to phase down. Other countries were clearly furious about this during the final meeting, but they did approve the deal so that an agreement could be reached from the summit. Uh, subsidies are also mentioned in the text, so there's a commitment to try and phase out, uh, quote, inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, which is a phrase that can be interpreted in different ways and probably will be. Um, it was also agreed that next year's summit will be held in Egypt, and countries are going to be asked to bring new and higher commitments to reduce emissions before the next summit and annually from then on, which is going to move up the timeline from the 2015 Paris Agreement, which required targets in 2025. So it's a little bit sooner than that. Um, but as with a lot of high-level agreements, it's not necessarily the wording of the text that's the key point, because it's a voluntary and non-binding agreement anyway. What's really key here in the coming years is the momentum generated to decarbonize, to phase out fossil fuels, and to fund a net zero transition, and how that's going to translate to regulatory action on a national level going forward. Now, in spite of this uh, mixed result, a sound positive step is the completion of rules on global carbon markets, often referred to as Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. Uh, Julia, what is that all about and how is that relevant for businesses? So, hi, James. Um, Article 6 of the Paris Agreement basically uh, sets the rules for cooperation between countries when it comes to climate, and that includes the use of carbon markets and the sale of credits as an instrument to achieve emissions reduction goals. And finally, after six years following the Paris Accord of 2015, the rulebook has been finalised in Glasgow this year, and this uh, will allow countries that exceed their emissions reduction targets to sell their remaining credits to others. And this is happening already now, but uh, after Glasgow, this will happen according to global common standards. And in particular, the deal reached at COP26 should prevent the much feared issue of double counting of emissions reduction. And this is thanks to an agreed adjustment mechanism that will ensure that carbon credits are only accounted once and not in two countries at the same time. And this issue was uh, was quite divisive in the past. It had kept negotiators apart at the previous COP25 in Madrid, uh, and that was alongside the carryover of credits from a previous mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol that will only partially be maintained under the new mechanism um, agreed in Glasgow. So basically, this Glasgow agreement sets frame framework rules for voluntary trading emissions, both in bilateral deals, but also in a marketplace that will be supervised by the United Nations. Uh, but the point is that some technical details are yet to be hammered out and will be in the coming months and years. 
for companies, um, the main point, as, as they are increasingly interested in displaying their green credentials, the new UN carbon market mechanism will provide a clear and regulated way of purchasing recognized offsets, uh, such as reforestation programs in other countries that then companies can account to reach their own established uh, targets. Now, on top of the broader deal, companies have seen governments in different formations come up with collective green pledges that are um, likely to determine the course of legislation in the years ahead. Um, Katie, just returning to you, what would you say were the most attention-grabbing of the uh, proposals put forward? So this is a relatively dense list, so please do bear with me. We saw tons and tons of pledges coming out during the first week of the conference, and they were really attention-grabbing, uh, separate from the actual negotiated deal, which came out in the second week. So we saw side pledges in a couple of different areas. Um, three key areas are emissions, finance, and transport. So emissions-wise, there was an agreement between the US and the EU to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030. So far, more than 100 countries have joined that effort. And there's also going to be, well, there already is, a UN body for monitoring methane emissions. And the US announced that it would join it during COP. So it looks like methane is going to be under much more scrutiny globally as we go forward. India also pledged to hit net zero carbon emissions by 2070, which was criticised by some as too late and others defended it as India is a developing country. On finance, 40 countries pledged to phase out coal from their energy production and 20 agreed to stop funding it abroad, which does move the needle, but it falls short of an agreement on a global phase out that lots of countries were hoping for in the official deal. And a promised $100 billion per year in climate finance for developing countries, which richer countries had aimed to reach by COP, did not materialise, and it's now only forecast to be achieved in 2023. There was also an international group from the finance sector who pledged to mobilise $130 trillion in climate finance. On transport, the pledges were a little bit more of a mixed bag, Uh, A group of countries and car manufacturers pledged to phase out fossil fuel powered cars by 2040, but the two largest car companies worldwide and key car producing companies, the US and Germany, did not join. There was an agreement to reduce emissions from aviation, which also disappointed just 18 countries joining. And on shipping, 19 countries agreed to create at least six zero emissions shipping corridors by 2025. So overall, there's plenty of momentum towards decarbonizing, towards phasing out fossil fuels and funding the green transition, but also cause for disappointment in some corners over the level of commitments from rich or fossil fuel dependent countries and industries. Okay, so uh, Julia, in light of all of these green commitments on the part of several uh, jurisdictions, but not all jurisdictions across the globe, given Uh, the rules on international emissions trade. What do you think about the EU plans uh, to introduce a carbon levy on imports? I mean, is that policy going to be uh, somehow altered by this process? Um, I doubt, James. A formal legislative proposal has already been put on the table by the European Commission. 
And as much as it can still be changed, because both EU parliamentarians and national governments uh, seem to agree, at least in principle, on the need for such a measure. Um, so let's remember that the idea is to oblige EU importers of products such as steel, cement, some metals and electricity to purchase emissions certificates to make up for the difference in terms of carbon price between the block and the country of production. And so at COP26, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has been pretty clear that the EU is determined to, to charge this new levy on polluting imports. Precisely, uh, she reiterated that commitment at an event where she was speaking alongside the chiefs of the World Trade Organization, Gozi Okiono Iwala, and the International Monetary Fund's Kristalina Georgieva. And at that event, which we reported about, the WTO and IMF chiefs were actually calling for a global carbon price as the best option to tackle climate change and avoid tensions on the global stage. But von der Leyen dismissed the idea as unrealistic for the moment, and she said that the EU will proceed with its plan. But at the same time, European Commission Vice President Franz Timmermans, who's like the main politician behind the Green Deal in the EU, said in Glasgow that the need for this planned CBAM may actually decrease in future with more and more countries stepping up their climate ambitions. And as an example, Turkey has recently decided to sign and ratify the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. And one of the reasons was exactly the fear its domestic industries would be penalized by the new carbon border levy. So indeed, the CBAM has already having effects uh, worldwide. So all in all, and in spite of the progress in terms of the pledges, targets and commitments, the EU is still very much likely to be introducing its CBAM over the next years and only the translation of plans and pledges into concrete policies could spare its straight partners from it. Okay, Katie and Julia, thank you for the weeks of work you've put into our COP26 coverage. I can't wait for COP27 uh, and we really appreciate it. Thanks again. Thank you for hosting us, James. Thank you for having us. Bye. Julia Bedini and Catherine Carlson cover energy from MLEX's Brussels Bureau and we'll have some highlights of their reporting from COP26 at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. And subscribers, of course, have access to the full COP26 portfolio with all of the dates, reporting and analysis you could possibly need to make sense of what happened at the summit. Regrettably, though, we're out of time for today, but we will be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. I hope you can join us then. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.